Um, I, I thought it might be a good idea before we go into the quality of questions that are input into tournaments to say a few more words about the nature of the Good Judgment Project and um, what it meant to win the forecasting tournament, how it won the forecasting tournament, and what inferences you might or might not want to draw from victory in forecasting tournaments in general. Um, so if, I, if you were to turn to slide 28 in the book, um, it raises a question, how much can the Good Judgment Project improve foresight? And when IARP originally launched this project, they thought that to be beating the unweighted average of the crowd by 20% would be an ambitious goal in year one, 30% in year two, 40% in year three, and 50% in year four. Um, the Good Judgment Project, for reasons that are interesting, was able to beat the ARPA fourth year benchmark in the first year and in, in all subsequent years. And for reasons that are also maybe a little less interesting, other teams were not. I think, say, there was, uh, reasons are less interesting. I don't think it was due to their uh, not being, um, not having the right research expertise. I think there were issues of mismanagement of, of how, how they went about it. Uh, we, we had a way better project manager. But uh, put, putting, putting that to the side, um, the Good Judgment Project was able to do far better than IARPA or any of the other researchers who consulted on the design of the project thought possible. Um, and we were able to knock out some, some pretty formidable competitors. The next slide, slide 29, tells you what the four big drivers of performance were. Uh, in the tournament, and uh, they were get the right pe people on the bus, the benefits of interaction, the benefits of training, and the benefits of that strange algorithm I called the uh, extremizing algorithm. Um, because of the expert, because of the earlier work I did on expert political judgment, I think we had a bit of a reputational advantage, and I think we did get s little better forecasters. That was that was advantage A, uh, but that wasn't the the biggest factor though. Um, we we. Um, we put them together in teams, and we gave those teams guidance on how to interact. We gave them training and precision questioning. We gave them training in, um, in how to, what, what I guess Andy Grove famously called constructive confrontation, how to, how to disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, we, so we gave them some guidance on how to do those sorts of things. Um, interestingly, the, the teams in the prediction markets were for the most part, running close to parity. Uh, the super forecaster teams, of course, doing much better. But it turns out that both prediction market, collaborating in teams and competing in prediction markets both tend to boost performance um, um, off, 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 off that baseline. Um, then we invented some training modules that were designed to alert people to common cognitive biases uh, and uh, propose some correctives and also give them some very simple rules of thumb for how to go about um, making initial estimates, um, especially the use of comparison classes, which you could talk about later if you want. And then finally, uh, so you get better forecasters, you have better teams, you have better training, and then you have the, these, these algorithms that, that take the better forecasters, forecasters who have increasingly good track records, give more weight to their, the recent forecasts of the best forecasters, and then you do some extremizing nudges that are statistically estimated uh, from previous, previous data sets. Uh, so you just gradually get better and better at it um, as, 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 as things unfold. So the next, the, the, I want, I'm just going to say the right people. What, do, what, what does it mean getting the right people on the bus? 
it meant several things. It, it meant uh, fluid intelligence, which is that funny little test I have on the next page. Um, uh, active open-mindedness, which is close to this notion of being more fox-like. Uh, granularity and using probability scales. In other words, trying to make many distinctions along the 0 to 100 scale. Not that you can make 100 distinctions along the 0 to 100 scale, but trying. Uh, seeing forecasting skill as a skill that can be cultivated and is worth cultivating. Uh, that's another one of the key, key ingredients. You, you, need, you need to believe that this is possible. If, if you don't believe it's possible, you're not going to try it. And if you're a decision maker and you don't think it's possible, you're not going to buy it. <laughs> so uh, there, 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 is, there is some element of self-fulfillment here. Um, so this is the next is, is the Raven's progressive matrices. This is a, an interesting test that was developed a long time ago. It's one of the oldest psychological tests. Uh, it was used in World War II, I think, by the British, U.S., and, and Russian armed Soviet armies uh, for identifying uh, talent among raw recruits, uh, uh, kids who were coming from the countryside who didn't have a lot of education, but they thought had potential to do more sophisticated things in the military. Uh, and this was a test that didn't require words at all. It just required uh, seeing patterns. Um, so, and then there's a the notion of granularity, uh, this, this idea that it's useful to try to become, to, to distinguish more degrees of uncertainty, to, to think of the Hillary's electoral prospects, well, you know, from 60 to 58 to 57 to 63, as things, as events unfold, you, 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 you update. Uh, and you update in, in, in often in, in fairly small increments because most of the news is fairly small and incremental. Now, of course, when big things happen, forecasters move fast, but uh, um, you, usually it, it, it's, a, it's an incremental process. Um, and <clears throat> it's interesting what the US intelligence community believes about how granular it's possible to be. Uh, the, the slide that is uh, numbered um, 30, 33, um, has the official scales the U.S. intelligence community uses. Um, they have recently decided, and um, I guess it's IC Directive 203, to, to actually start attaching numbers to the verbal labels. Um, but previously, what you had were these scales were kind of shaded, moving from you know, very unlikely to very likely. This was the five-point scale. Then they moved to a seven-point scale. Now they're, moving, now they're working with a seven-point scale that has numerical anchors. Um, it's in the book, so you can see it. <laughs> it's in here. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit small there, but um, it, 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 it is interesting that the IC is becoming increasingly granular, and they, 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 they find the idea of granularity quite, quite interesting, and at least some of them do. Um, then, uh, again, uh, the next slide, people stimulating each other to be smarter, either through cooperation or competition. Is the customers in the IC like the idea of granularity? <laughs> It hinges enormously on who the customer is. So if your customer were a Secretary of Treasury like Robert Rubin or Larry Summers, the answer would be, of course. Um, but not all policymakers are that way. Um, uh, my understanding informally is, is that President Obama is somewhat open to that. He's not extremely quant, but he's not averse to it. Um, um, I think Bill Clinton was somewhat open to it. I, I think it depends on, on who the policymaker is. And 
and it, dep and it depends on the topic, whether the, top, the policymaker is optimistic that this is a topic that falls in the domain of probability, or whether it should be treated in some other fashion, whatever that might be. As, a, as an analogy, I, I don't know if people here are, are familiar with the TRLs, technology readiness levels that NASA originally developed, which went from a, you know, previously there'd been very fuzzy terms about how good technology was, and NASA came up with a series of TR, technology readiness levels, roughly 10 or 12 scales, from had been demonstrated in the laboratory, had been demonstrated in the field, was ready to be started to be integrated into a mission, had been on a mission, you know, all through this. And this has been adopted in lots of places just over the last five years as a scale to be able to look at a, a technology, look at that label, and know whether you should use it in your project or not. And see Peter nodding. Is this something that... Oh, this was, we used this at DARPA religiously. Yeah. And, um, it, it was also the way to guide the uh, distribution of the dollars. So, so before that, it was very fuzzy with that defined set of categories, roughly 10 of them or 12 of them, I can't remember. What's the term again? Technology readiness level. TRL. TRL. And it's been very influential, I think, in engineering. So, this could, so that's why I, I, this could become, based on that experience, by having a few explicit labels that, that could change what people's ways of thinking. It did in the, in the technology arena. Yeah, that is that's very interesting. I have to think about that. Um. Anyway, I'm just by way of rapid overview of the components of the winning strategy: uh, the, the right people uh, on the bus, the teaming in the prediction markets, the um, the training modules, um, uh, which. Um, do a lot of different things, um, and it would take us, we, we could have a whole session on what probabilistic reasoning training entails, uh, but the, the interesting thing is the exercises themselves only require about an hour, and they do produce an improvement in probability judgment over the year of about 10%, which um, for those of you who have, who have been in the training business is remarkable. Uh, that's, the, the effects are, should, should, should dissipate far faster, far faster than that. So, did, did they ever produce a decrease? Did you ever get, I remember people used to worry about group thing. Um, they still do. <laughs> they still do. Um, you mean the function of teaming or training? The teaming. Um, these, the group thing is not much of a threat in this type of forecasting tournament environment because people aren't face-to-face. -face. These are virtual teams. They don't have a leader. They're, 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 they, they, if anything, the problem is, is getting enough coordination, not, not excessive coordination and, and, and conformity pressure. Uh, now, it is true that some, some teams do have taboos, and they sometimes hurt their, their performance on certain questions. Um, and, but, but the super forecaster teams are particularly good at um, you know, doing this um, constructive confrontation process. Uh, are, there, are there particular questions where, uh, you, you, particular areas where the improvement is most dramatic? In other words, where the collective view or the, or the hedgehog view is most wrong? 
particular categories of questions where people who are, let's say, translate this, are particularly opinionated are likely to be blindsided. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes, there are. Uh, and uh, here's one quick example. It would be um, an odd question, but 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 uh, would the French or Swiss medical teams investigating the causes of the death of Yasser Arafat find evidence of polonium in his in his uh, in the, um, Post-mortem. Um, this many years after his death. Um, now, this was a question that um, <coughs> some people who had very strong views on the subject felt it was uh, uh, an attack on Israel, and they thought it, the question. They, they thought they read the question as, "Did did Israel kill Arafat?" And for them, the answer was, they did attribute substitution. <laughs> Once again, attribute substitution strikes. And, 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 the, and the answer for them was, no, it didn't. Um, and people who think, think it did are you know, nasty anti-Semitic people. Uh, and that kind of shuts down conversation in a group um, pretty fast. Um, it turned out uh, that they did find evidence of polonium. Now, that doesn't mean Israel killed Arafat. Uh, there are many, many ways in which polonium could have, could have found its way into the body of Yasser Arafat. And the best super forecasters unpacked those ways. They were well aware that Israeli targeted assassination of Arafat was only one of a number of possible ways polonium could have gotten into Arafat. And uh, that put them on the higher side of maybe. But it was a very hard question. Uh, but having a, a, a strong emotional ideological reaction to the question hurt. Um, at any rate, um, better training, and then finally, the wisdom of the crowd algorithm. Uh, the, the, this slide, um, oh, I, I should have done that. 30, 37, 38, yeah, this one here. Um, this, this shows the, um, the, law god, the workings of the law gods extremizing algorithm. Um, the, the basic idea here is that the more diverse the inputs into the forecast, uh, the, the more justified you are in, um, in, 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 in extremizing it. Uh, and the more sophisticated the forecasters, that is, the more likely they are to know each other and know each other's arguments, the less justified you are. So extremizing is typically not done on super forecaster forecasts. It is done on mass forecasts. Um, and extremizing actually brings mass forecasts almost up to parity, in many cases, with super forecaster forecasts. So you can make the masses almost as good as the super forecasters with wow. a version of this, of this algorithm. So it's pretty, pretty powerful. Um, and it really has no advantage for super forecasts? Um, it really doesn't help them that much. It, isn't it a very strong argument to keep them separate? I mean, the super forecasters interrupt. But if you had super forecasters working in isolation, it's, an it's the teaming that's hurt. Wouldn't, wouldn't they do better if they worked in isolation? But you have extremized. We have multiple super forecaster teams, though. So even when you're aggregating across multiple, which which aren't communicating very much. So even when even there, you don't get much benefit. The other, the other thing about the super forecasters is that their total knowledge is much much greater than those of the mass. So they're sharing that, and they're they're making the pie huge relative to the other pies. What, what is the myth and reality of zero dark 30? 
the myth and reality is, oh, well, there, there, there are multiple myths, um, and, and there is, I think, ultimately one reality. Um, I guess the, 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 the myth was that there was uh, a single female CIA analyst who said 100% in the meeting. I gather that she was more reasonable than that. Uh, she was quite convinced that, that, that he was there, uh, but a number of other people were quite convinced he was there too in the 90-95% range. Uh, but to say 100% in a situation like that, even if, um, I mean, there's certainly something very suspicious about that compound in Abbottabad, but there could have been a paranoid Pakistani businessman walled up in there. There could have been a lot of different things. It could have been a different terrorist uh, walled up in there. Um, so using, using one or zero on the probability scale is, in general, an unreasonable thing to do. Um, Except if she wants to establish a career. Right. <laughs> so say 95% of being right is fine. Say 100% of being right means you're the go-to person. Right. Now it's a risk. Yeah. So the question it's is... It's a very small risk. If you believe it's 95, that's it may be optimal to say one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, right. So people who do the psychometrics of probability scoring have lots of debates about what the proper, correct proper scoring rule is. You, you, want, you, want, a, you want a rule that incentivizes people to report their true probabilities, not, no, not probabilities. Well, okay. well, well, it's a tournament we did. Right, and and, right, and, yeah, and, and Breyer scoring right, is designed yeah, to do yeah, that. Yeah. It is to incentivize truth-telling. You, 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 you will suffer consequences if you, in your accuracy score if you allow self-presentational motives or emotional factors to cause you to pump up or deflate probabilities. You should be reporting your true probability. But there are different types of proper scoring rules, and some proper scoring rules are extraordinarily punitive toward using one. I mean, that, that, that's capital punishment. You never, <laughs> you never come back <laughs> if you say one and, and you're wrong. Um, whereas you can at least you know, come back with much effort <laughs> after 95%. Uh, so the, the, the question is, how, in your organization, how, how do you want to align the incentives for expressing confidence, and how much do you want to reward being uh, in the right, uh, on the right side of maybe, and how much do you want to punish people who over-extremize? Um, and that's a, difficult, that's a difficult judgment call, obviously. Um, and there's probably no one answer to that question. It's going to hinge on... On the, on the particulars of the decision and what your utility calculus is. Um, you say that your algorithm even beat uh, uh, prediction markets. So how much better than prediction markets is it? And uh, why is that? Well, I guess, the, uh, so David Ignatius uh, wrote an article in the Washington Post a couple of years ago on this tournament. And he claimed uh, from classified sources, and this is, you know, I can talk about this only because he wrote about it. Um, he, he, he claimed from classified sources that the Good Judgment Project outperformed a prediction market inside the intelligence community, which was populated with analysts who had access to classified information, professional analysts with classified information, outperformed it by um, uh, 25 or 30 percent, um, which uh, was about the margin by which the super forecasters were outperforming our own prediction market in the external world. Um, now, now, many economists would say there's got to be something wrong because yeah. prediction markets are the most efficient possible way of aggregating information. How could these prediction markets be, 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 be falling short? Um, all I can say is these were the facts. <laughs> um, 
And I, I, you can argue, I think economists would say, well, that's because we didn't have a real prediction market with real money. Uh, and that would, that would, I think, be their, be their argument. Um, you can't, and, and let's face it, we, we have not shown in this tournament that super forecasters are capable of reliably, uh, regularly beating deep liquid markets. Uh, that was not one of the uh, benchmarks in the competition. Um, we have, you know, no, okay. We just I mean, leave, deep, leave li deep liquid markets do not beat the average, do not beat their own average, or, or barely. So, <laughs> wouldn't you think that the case is closed on that? Um, I'm, I'm expressing the skepticism that economists who are who want who, 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 <laughs> people who wonder how prediction markets could have been beaten draw the conclusion that we must have operationalized prediction markets poorly. And that in particular, the government put a lot of constraints on how much we could pay people. We, for example, one of the most remarkable things is we couldn't pay people for accuracy. Um, we, we, um, we, we paid everybody the same thing, as whether they're super forecasters or they're just, it bumps them along. So uh, they're, they're, they're competing for reputation and for status, yeah. Uh, to, an illustration here of, of how good they got uh, is a 40. Uh, this is a receiver operating characteristic curve, and it shows the, the, the blue function rising up here shows the, how, how much better super forecasters were at um, achieving hits at an acceptable cost and false alarms. So if you had an equal base rate of events occurring and not occurring, a chance performance would be a straight diagonal across here. Um, and the, the, the faster you rise, the better. And um, in some other ROC curves that Mark Stivers at UCSD constructed, and um, what was LFC? a receiver operating characteristic curve from signal detection theory. You didn't know that? Um, <laughs> but uh, super forecasters could see, could assign probabilities 400 days out about as well as regular people could about 80 days out. So are we going to get back to some of the organizational design questions? Yes. Good. Yeah. Which is why we use this eye chart analogy. It's analogous to seeing better. Um, I, I want to get back to the complaints by economists because I, I suppose the simplest question an economist might ask is, well, then why not actually try to beat the market? That's, that's, an, that's, an, that's an excellent idea. It, it, it's something we should do. It, it was not something that was the, the, the central target of, this, of the IARPA project. Uh, IARPA had these national, over, most, it had some economic questions, and Spanish bond yield spreads and euro value. And there, were, there were some questions that had some market equivalents, um, but that was not the primary focus. And I, I think it would be a reasonable thing to do. So I wonder whether those tournaments actually don't, they're kind of markets too. They, Your tournaments are markets too, in a way. Yeah, the, I mean, differently organized than yeah. the reputational currency rather than financial, for example. Yeah, I think there, is, there certainly is a very competitive dynamic to it. Um, yeah. um, the gift economy is different than the money economy? This one, Wikipedia, for example. Wikipedia makes more economic sense. I mean, if it's a reputation thing, that's a reputation thing. So you get you, you paid in reputation dollars. I don't see why that is that different. It's reputation is patchily fungible compared to the cash. 
I'm guessing in the direction of what's going on here. Yeah, it is interesting how many of the super forecasters were quite public spirit, spirited software engineers. So, so software engineers are quite overrepresented in, in the um, among, among super forecasters. Not insurance company. And, 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 and not political scientists. <laughs> um, interestingly, uh, there, there are a few, but, but for reasons we could go into, I, I think there's somewhat of an analogy to it. Um, uh, but uh, touches on something that occurred to me a little bit earlier that uh, as I was reading the framework here and you were talking about it, it, it looked to me like in a way you were trying to find a way to harness hedgehogs, you know, turn hedgehogs into super forecasters and, and harness them you know, to kind of create a much stronger forecasting capability. And so, uh, because, it, you know, the the, the kind of setup, the framework, and the training that you put people through is pretty remarkable. It looks yeah. like an impressive yeah. way to create forecasting hedgehogs, so to speak. Is there something wrong with that, with that view? Um, I, I think we're trying to encourage everyone to go in that direction. Um, uh, in, in particular, we, we, we're encouraging people not to have tunnel vision. Uh, that the, the, the solving these forecasting problems typically requires uh, inputs from multiple perspectives. You have to look at it from the perspective of multiple actors, multiple frameworks, um, and uh, if you don't do that fairly regularly, you will, you will suffer in your rep reputational accuracy. The last thing I was going to say about this is I was, I was going to position the philosophy of the Good Judgment Project vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis four uh, pretty famous people, and that's on slide 49. 49. There's a picture of Danny. There's a picture of Anders Ericsson. There's a picture of Nassim Taleb, a picture of Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. And in, in, in each case, we're saying, you know, there's a, there are some basic points in which we agree, and then there are some differences in emphasis. So we certainly have been heavily influenced by Danny's work on biases, but I think we're, we're, we're somewhat more upbeat on debiasing. I think we're influenced by Anders Ericsson's work on deep practice. The super forecasters do engage in what Anders Ericsson calls deep, gritty practice, um, but we're less allergic to the concept of IQ. Um, Anders Ericsson sometimes leaves the impression that anybody can do it if you could do your 10,000 hours of practice. Um, and you know, we're, not, we're not saying that. Um, it, 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 had helps to, it certainly helps to be at least above average intelligence if you want to become a super forecaster. Uh, Nassim Taleb, uh, we certainly agree on the point that uh, uh, on the black swans and extreme outlier events and, and tail risk. Uh, but we, I guess where we would disagree is, is that um, anti-fragilizing is, is expensive. Uh, if you, you can't anti-fragilize everything, uh, you, you can't have a contingency plan for everything, uh, you have to prioritize, and prioritize means probabilities. I mean, he, I suppose he, he's now writing about this, saying that, uh, for example, you know, there are certain things which are systemically ris risky, like GMOs. Mm -hmm. um, no, I know. <laughs> which is worth being cautious about nuclear power, not, because it isn't the same kind of risk. Right. So, I mean, 
yeah, you, if you look at nature, we do have two kidneys, two eyes. You know, there's some there's some degree of built-in redundancy. The point you're raising, Marie, about um, you can anti-fragilize based on the magnitude of the consequences. I don't think you can magnetize purely on that. I think you also have to mag you're, you're also implicitly or explicitly factoring in probabilities. But well, we can. But I I I, I think the um, Nassim is skeptical of this. Of this enterprise, and, and we, we actually wrote, did write a, a, a joint uh, paper together in which we tried to reconcile our positions, but I don't think we were we were successful. Um, and then Bruce, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, um, a, a famous game theorist in, in political science, uh, and, and we we um, some some of our best super forecasters do use game theory uh, in, in in their analyses. Um, but we um, don't buy into as strong assumptions about rationality as he does. And um, we, we don't use the particular aggregation methods he uses. Although the aggregation techniques he uses do have some family resemblance to the ones that we use. Um, um, at any rate, that this position, so the Good Judgment Project is pretty unapologetically eclectic. We, 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 we're, we're, picking in, we're picking out ideas from lots of different places. And that's, I think, what tournaments require you to do. You don't have the luxury of saying, um, Ala Paul Krugman, that well, yeah, I, would, you know, I overestimated the IQ of the Greek government, or you know, you, 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 <laughs> these things matter. It matters that you get you, you, your economic analysis to be right, but it also matters that your political analysis be right if you're making uh, recommendations in the real world. Uh, so these are um, forecasting tournaments. Don't give you you don't have the option of retreating into your disciplinary castle. And, um, you, and I think we, we as researchers don't have the luxury of retreating into our favorite uh, psychological or statistical approaches. We, we have to be continually um, innovating. Um. Could we go back to the participants in the tournament? Because that was an interesting yeah. mm -hmm. throwaway line you gave about the software engineers. <laughs> and, and I'm also wondering in the tournament that Bob reports on the evolution of cooperation, who was Maybe they're similar over or under representations. But both of you want to hear about you know, the position of the participants. Um, my tournament was recruited from mostly the second round, which was from magazine ads uh, in computer hobbyist magazines. And so maybe a third of the people were professionals. In the first round, they were all professionals. Uh, but there wasn't a correlation. Um, and sort of what they were doing was a little different than, than the prediction tournaments. Because basically, one way to think about it, they were predicting each other. Yeah. And in particular, how responsive the other players would be. So. This is going to be a little bit of an aside, but I think it's relevant. Um, so your work on, on, on tit for tat, nice, clear, forgiving, retaliatory, what a, what a uh, remarkably adaptive strategy it can be. Various people have come out over the last 20, 30 years and offered qualifications to that thesis, either you know, less forgiving, more forgiving, um, in different types of in, in environments with different functional properties. Um, that, do you, do you have a sense for, um, have you changed your mind very much? Or, or were those qualifications you were aware of beforehand? Uh, Just barely. I mean, the major one is that um, if there's some misunderstanding or misimplementation, so sometimes you meant to cooperate, the other person thought that you were defecting, 
Uh, then it definitely pays to uh, be what I call generous, let's say 10% of the time don't respond. And that ends the unending possibility of echoing a mistake. Um, so that definitely we should be more forgiving than tit for tat. And um, I've done a lot of work in, you don't have to be much more forgiving to do a lot better. And if you know that you made a mistake, like your organization defected when you intended to choose cooperation and the other guy defects back, it pays to be contrite, which is not to echo that right away. That can be really more efficient. Um, so that, that's the main uh, modification, which I, was, I vaguely was aware of when I wrote the book. But um, it's become much clearer about how to, how to deal with uh, that problem. Mm -hmm. And there is a straightforward way to deal with it. So the composition of our forecasting population, um, Barb, you, you, I think you're probably more familiar with this than I am, but uh, a surprisingly large percentage of our top performers um, do not come from social science backgrounds. Um, they come from uh, physical science, biological science, software. Software is really quite overrepresented, isn't it, among our yeah. top performers? Um, and are they ever represented in your sample altogether, or just in the top performers? Um, overrepresented, probably. I'm not sure relative to what, but yeah. we have an awful lot of them, yes. Yeah. Um, we have pharmacists, doctors, lawyers, uh, sociologists. It's, it's yeah. We have some social scientists, <laughs> but, but not as many as you might think. But is that just an opt-in bias? I mean, that they're on their computer all day, and then they're willing to click a button question. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I, I think it's also, they find it really, they find it very interesting, this question here, about what are the limits of probability? What are the limits of quantification? They find that an engaging question. It, 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 they, they like to compete. They're competitive. They're curious about what the limits of quantification are. And this is a, it becomes a kind of existential mission for some of them. They, they, they really get into it. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 pardon me? They do, yes, they certainly did. They, they, they do, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah, there's a certain, I, I think if you looked at the personality profile of super forecasters and super crossword puzzle players and, and various other gaming people, uh, you, you would find some um, similarities, yes. But I guess that backs the question that I'm really driving towards, which is how do the super forecasters, I mean, you're, you're, you're figuring out things about them from within the population of the forecasters. Mm -hmm. But what about the larger population? Are there better or worse types out there? And is there a way to get at that and who's more, yeah. more likely to become a problem? Well, well, the individual difference variables are continuous, and they apply throughout the forecasting population. So the higher you score on that, that Raven's matrix problem, they're, they're not the whole, there's a whole series of Raven's matrix problems, the higher you score on that, the higher you score on open, active open-mindedness, the more interested you are in becoming granular. The more you view forecasting as a skill that can be cultivated and is worth cultivating and worth working on and devoting time to, or you have uh, th those things drive performance across the spectrum. And whether, whether you make the super forecaster cut, which is rather arbitrary or not, 
Um, but, but there is a spirit of playfulness it, 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 that, 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 that is at work here. They're not working, they're, they're, you, don't, you don't get that kind of effort from uh, serious professionals for a $250 Amazon gift card. Uh, you, 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 get, you get that kind of engagement because they're intrinsically motivated. They, 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 they're really curious about how far they can push this. Did you in any way measure the amount of effort they put into it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of different ways. Self-report. Um, it's hard to, to, to see how long they're on the computer because they may have gone off and gone on a vacation or something. But um, there, there's a story about one super forecaster that I like. He's a guy from Santa Barbara named Doug L. And he decided that he was going to only work for two hours a day on, on this. And so what should he do for those two hours? Well, he's a retired programmer, so I, I, he sat down and wrote a lovely program that takes into account uh, who on his team has not updated for, for a long period of time, and just a, a lot of different factors. So he, again, he's a pub, public-spirited guy. He then gives his, his tool to everybody on his team. Okay, that year, Doug L. came in first out of all the super forecasters, and his team members came in second, third, and fourth. So, uh, you know, it's they're not subjects; they're collaborators. They're building tools for us. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so they are creating software tools that assist them with the work. With with the work. So, in some sense, some of the super forecasters have already become human machine hybrids to a certain to a certain crude degree, and. And was it Doug L or was it Tim or what, which, which super forecaster was it who developed that program for ensuring that he got a balanced ideological diet of That's news? That's Tim. That was Tim. So it was a way of. <laughs> 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 yeah. So this is a program written that goes into the computer, yeah. like a, an app. It's, it's, it's a way of reminding. It's, it's, it's a way of reminding him of, of, the, of the sources he's looked at on, on, the, on this question and whether he should be balancing you know, his, his, his informational diet. But was there a correlation between time spent and forecasting ability when you looked at that self-reported information? Uh, yes, um, in the sense of how often do you update your forecast? That's huge. But have a good time. Well, we, 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 don't have a, we don't have a good measure of that. We don't have, yeah, that's hard to say. Um, but I think it's fair to say that some people work smarter than others do in this domain as in other domains, uh, and, but that on average there's got to be some correlation. Uh, Phil, could, could you do this with a cookie? Like, could a, a software ISP insert a cookie into an ad that goes on your machine with that program? So. but is there, presumably some of the things they're being asked to predict are more or less predictable than other things. For sure. Um, and do you ask them anything about their uh, self-confidence? 
in, in their own ability to predict? Uh, is there any relationship yeah. between how uh, confident someone is about their predictions and how accurate those predictions yeah. are? Yeah, Barb was doing a number of uh, variations of that from one year to the next, looking for um, a self-report indicator that would predict uh, predictive performance on a question-by-question -question basis, uh, your self-rated expertise, your self-rated confidence, and the results were fairly anemic. Um, but doesn't that make sense? Because you highlight overconfidence as sort of, uh, you know, a blind spot, and, and that the best super forecasters right. aren't overconfident. Yeah. But of course, if the forecaster who just mindlessly internalizes admonitions against overconfidence is not going to do very well in this tournament because they're going to stick too close to maybe. <laughs> you've got you've, they have they have to be aggressive when appropriate. Uh, I mean, in the real world, though, don't we really? Shouldn't the goal be partly to encourage people to be much more pessimistic about their own predictive abilities in areas that are difficult to predict? Um, Yes. Um, it, it, it proves to be very difficult to predict the predictability of questions. Um, ex, yeah, ex ante, it's very difficult. Um, it, but it's not totally impossible. Uh, when you have subject matter experts do it, you can get correlations maybe up to about 0.25 or so, uh, which is you know, something. Um, but there are questions after the fact that you know they resolved in a remarkably fluky way. And it could easily have gone one way or the other. Um, it was a matter of minutes. Or it was a matter of just inches or minutes or very small amounts of money or interest rates, very small percentage differences. Um, so these are called, we call these close calls. And um, uh, close calls are certainly a source of serious noise in the data. Um, but they're not so serious that they prevent us from finding a lot of patterns. There are those two dimensions which maybe you want to explain on, on of accuracy and calibration, which I mentioned yes. in one of your slides. And I was going to ask about the difference between super forecasters and others, uh, how much of that is in calibration, how much of that is in accuracy. Right. And we're, okay, so calibration is, um, when I say there's a 70% likelihood of something happening, things happen 70% of the time. When I say there's an 80% likelihood of things happening, those things happen about 80% of the time. 90, I say 90%, those things happen about 90%. So, there's a, so my subjective probabilities correspond to the objective likelihood of events that have been assigned that probability category. Resolution or discrimination, as it's known in, in the literature, is another statistical component of the Breyer score. And that refers to my skill at assigning much higher probabilities to things that happen than to things that don't happen. Um, and super forecasters are better on both. Uh, did you want to comment on? Uh, they're much higher on, on the most important one, which is discrimination or resolution. Yeah, because if, if you give all the events that happen a probability of 0.6 and all the events that don't happen a probability of 0.4, your calibration is miserable, but your discrimination is perfect. No, you make you by the way around. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you, you, no, if you say, if I, if I only use 0. 0.6, and, and, and things happen. You only use 0. 0.6 and 0. 0.4. Okay, and, 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 and things happen 60% in this. Oh, in the, no, in, no, that's right, you're right. Yeah. So if I only use 0. 0.6 and, and 0. 0.4 as my probability, so I'm not, I'm not saying anything beyond minor shades of maybe. So I'm not very interesting already. Um, and and it, when the things I say are 0. 0.6 likely, um, they happen 60% of the time. The things I say are 0.4 likely happen 40% of the time. 
Danny is saying, I'm perfectly calibrated, but I'm not very interesting, and I don't, and I don't have good discrimination. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not assigning very different probabilities to things that happen and don't. I'm, all you can tell from Tetlock is just minor shades of maybe. And you do, we typically want more from people than that. So I noticed on the block curve, it seemed very good, particularly good at not having false positives. But that could be also your question. So are the things you're asking to predict unlikely things? In other words, are? Um, they're all. The, the, well, we, we, it's very hard for us to judge the objective <laughs> truth of that. <laughs> because what, what, well, okay, okay, so what percent, so most of the time things don't change. And it varies from year to year how much more common the status quo is than change, but generally change is, 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 is the lower base rate event. Um, I think the last year was about 70-30. Um, so, in favor of things not happening? Yes, in favor, yeah, in favor of the status quo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, tournaments. Um, I, what I would like to shift to are, are these, um, so certain tournaments have a scientific value. They help us test a lot of psychological hypotheses about the drivers of accuracy. They help us test some statistical ideas. There are a lot of ideas we can test in tournaments. Uh, tournaments have a value inside organizations and businesses because insofar as more accurate probabilities help you to price options better on Wall Street or do whatever, uh, they, have, they have value there. Um, but I wanted to focus more on what I see as the wider societal value of tournaments and the potential value of tournaments in depolarizing, unnecessarily polarizing uh, policy debates. Uh, in short, making us more civilized. Um, and how might tournaments do that? Um, and why the tournaments, the, the first generation tournaments we've been running are not quite up to that task because they have focused so heavily on accuracy and the quality of the questions being input into the tournaments, I wouldn't say we have low quality questions, but we haven't explicitly incentivized the generation of high quality questions. So some critics would say it's a bit like the drunkard search, like this, the, the guy who looks for his keys under the uh, lamplight because that's not where he dropped the keys, but that's where it's brightest. Uh, we, 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 there's a well-developed research literature on how to measure accuracy. There's not such a well-developed research literature on how to measure the quality of questions, but the quality of questions is going to be absolutely crucial if we want tournaments to be able to play a role of tipping the scales of plausibility in important debates and if we want tournaments to play a role in incentivizing people to behave more reasonably in debates. Here's what we know. We, 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 first thing we know is that there's a trade-off. <laughs> there's a trade-off between rigor and relevance. So really rigorous questions are questions that you can resolve in a certain time frame with absolute clarity. We know that you're on the right side of maybe, someone else is on the wrong side of maybe. We, we, could, we, we know that. Um, there, there's, no, there's no room for for much debate about it, um, that's, passing, that's what it means to pass the clairvoyance test. Uh, the relevant questions are questions that uh, tap into big debates. Um, so what do policymakers really care about? Well, what they really care about is the stability of the Eurozone, or what they really care about is uh, geopolitical intentions of Putin, or what they really care about is uh, the uh, robustness of the Chinese economy and political system. There's a whole series, these are big questions they care about. Um, but you, those are not questions you can enter into forecasting tournaments. 
So the challenge here on, um, okay, so the goal here is to generate uh, questions that are simultaneously more rigorous and relevant. So you want to push out the rigor relevance frontier. And what might that look like? Well, the rigorous questions tend to be about small things each of which has a small degree of relevance to a big question. So it's easy for any given forecasting question for you to shrug and say, well, you know, what does Spanish bond yields tell me about the viability of the Eurozone? Well, not very much. What does a, what does a clash in the South China Sea between the Philippines and, and Chinese Navy, what does that tell us about Chinese geopolitical intent? Well, perhaps not that much. Um, what you're looking for is creating clusters of resolvable indicators each of which makes a significant incremental contribution to the resolution of a bigger question. So in the, this, this question clustering idea, while we'll, we'll trying to become more aggressive, you want to look at whether they're going to attempt to interdict US naval forces in a certain region of um, the uh, <clears throat> Western Pacific. You want to look at whether or not there's a Sino-Japanese clash around contested islands in the East China Sea. You're going to want to look at um, fishing in, uh, rights in the South China Sea. Uh, you're going to want to look at going after the Philippines on the St. Uh, Second Thomas Shoal. You're going to want to look at uh, selling uh, UAVs. Um, and you're going to want to look at, uh, say, Chinese defense spending. There's a whole host of things you might want to look at. He, what you do, you need, you need to mobilize expert opinion in a systematic way to generate these question clusters. Then you need to populate the tournaments with these question clusters. And then you need the tournaments to generate probabilistic answers to the question clusters that then we can look at and say, look, this, this should tip the scales of plausibility toward a more pessimistic or optimistic view of Chinese geopolitical intent in the, in the next 12 months, or the next 24 months, or the next 48 months. Um, but that's something that's very, very hard to do. And it, has, it hasn't, been, hasn't been done on a large and systematic scale yet. Um, so we have some other examples in, among the slides. We have one for Russia. We have one fill in the blanks. How, how would you measure global economic, global economic volatility? What would, what would many small, oh, many, many, many useful mini indicators of global economic volatility be? Um, and when I was talking at the IMF, it was very easy for people to generate lots of those. Um, 